Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode is from a live recording from one of our webinars that originally aired on October 3rd. The event coincided with the release of the Sick Research Institute's report named Sikhi and Sexuality, seventh in the State of the Pumped Report series. Moderating the discussion is Mandinder Kaur, who will get us started. Thank you for joining today's webinar hosted by the Sikh Research Institute. Now, I would like to introduce you to today's panelists. We have Harinder Singh. Harinder Singh is an educator and thinker who is deeply in love with One Force, the oneness that radiates in all. He currently serves as a senior fellow research and policy at the Sikh Research Institute. His current focus is on availing the message of the Guru Granth Sahib to global populations and developing critical thinking in Sikh institutions. Um, he currently resides in the United States with his wife and two children. And we also have Jocelyn Gore. Jocelyn is a WVA grad in religious studies, focusing on South Asian religions through the lens of literature and poetry. She is currently working as a researcher with Sikri. She also loves singing in her free time, whether on stage, with her friends, or alone in her kitchen. She hopes to eventually go back to school in pursuit of a PhD in either religious ethnography uh, or history and fulfill her dream of teaching and learning from others. I, I will be moderating this conversation just to let everyone know um, the crux of this conversation will be to understand sexuality uh, in the context of a sick worldview. Um, however, please keep in mind that we are not simply here um, to read the report uh, or the information in the State of the Punth report. Um, it has been linked in the chat box. Um, so please feel free to uh, have a read after today's webinar. Um, as a fairly new addition to the SICRI team, I was so excited uh, when I first joined to see this report being put together. Uh, and I'm equally as thrilled now to be able to engage with Harinder Singh and Jocelyn, um in this conversation. I think sexuality in general is confusing and usually an avoided topic. So yeah, and then when we try to have a conversation about it in the SICK context, it's difficult to find spaces where such a conversation is happening. So I'm grateful uh, for the space that has been provided. Um, before we get into what Bani, history, um, or Lipsiki says about sexuality, I'll throw my first question to Jocelyn. Uh, you drafted this report. I'd love to start with some insight into why sexuality was the theme uh, or the focus of this report and what was being discussed through this drafting process. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to throw in a couple of like personal sort of like anecdotes. As I've been a researcher at Sikri, I think a conversation that comes up quite a bit is um, what does what does Sikhi say about sexuality? Um, especially when I was doing the teen course, that was a, a big topic of conversation um, and something that I think her and their saying and I have both found in in a lot of ways when it comes to sexuality, people will like kind of ask you, ask you in like hushed tones, or they'll look for like very clear moral pronouncements, or they'll be given moral pronouncements in the case of the the teenagers, where it's like they they thought the sick understanding of of like sexuality was just you can't have sex before marriage. Like that's it. Um 
So there's no sort of like nuancing or or like complete understandings of how words like gom are used in the Guru Granth Sahib, um, how like the metaphor of union with Ikongar is often um, the metaphor of like going to the divine's bed or like union with the divine is is common. Um, and so I think like it's a thing that we were thinking about over like a long time, like maybe years, <laughs> um, because of what we were finding both in like the teen spaces and the young adult and like older, older spaces as well. Um, I think like, even within our closed circles, we, we're like uncomfortable bringing these things up because we don't want that judgment. Um, we're afraid to ask certain questions. And so, you know, sexuality is a thing that's a part of all of our lives, no matter what. So, so that's, I think that's why we really felt the need to address it. Um, as far as drafting the report, I think, yeah, we were kind of just thinking through the questions that we've been asked. So a big thing in the teen class was like, what is scum? Like, what does that even mean? Um, what is lust? What is like, is it the same as sex? Are they synonymous? Um, is there a difference? What is love? How is love explained in Gurbani? Um, and then also there's questions about sexual orientation that come up too. So like sexual preference, sexual orientation, um, where, where do we fall on that? Um, is there a clear moral pronouncement? And that came up again with the teens. <laughs> so, so I think um, those major questions kind of uh, sort of centered us in some kind of trajectory of like how we were going to read through these things, how we we're going to think through these things, what nuances we felt we needed to add. Um, and yeah, so the, the purpose of the report that we kind of came up with in discussion was like, we want to understand sexuality in the context of a sick worldview. And we want to see, we want to understand how like sicky shapes our human behavior when it comes to that. But also like, how does, how does the way that we view this integral part of like our, our experiences as humans, how do we view that in connection to like how we sort of conceive of relationships, morality, spirituality, and like whether or not we should be placing judgments on people. These are all things that are connected to this topic. So um, those were things that we kind of thought through. And then the first, I think, major thing we had to do was define what sexuality was in the context of the report. So we were very clear and we said, um, it's it encompasses both how one experiences sexual and romantic attraction, if at all, because some people don't. Um, and then two, one's interest in and preferences around sexual and romantic relationships and behavior. So I, I literally just read that off of the, of the report because I think that is really important to get very clear right off the bat. Um, but yeah, so those, those are the things that we thought through and the reasons behind, um, behind feeling that it was, is important for us to write on this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the <clears throat> elements of the discovery class that I loved so much um, that these conversations are happening and it's so wonderful to have a space where context is provided. And I think that's both what you did in that class um, and what is being done in this report. Um, so maybe moving into more uh, on what is uh, written in the report and some touching on some things that you've already brought up. Um, yeah, so some conversations in the mainstream um, in relation to, or sorry, sexuality, in relation to sexuality, 
um, revolve around, like you said, love and lust, which I think relates to what is sex, sex an expression of. Um, is it for procreation? Can it be for ple pleasure? So I'll throw it back to you again, uh, Jocelyn. Um, um, in the context of Bonnie, what is love? What is lust? And why are the two so often connected or linked? So I think the first thing <laughs> that we have to make clear is that like Bonnie Bonnie is not a thing that will give us moral pronouncements. We're not people of the law. Um, so if anything, and kind of what our goal was with the report, Bonnie gives us a sense of how to think through things together, how to develop personal relationships with these ideas and with Ikonkar in a way that affects how we behave in the world. Um, so that's an important thing, I think, to make clear um, before I get into it. But um, so the... The way that Bonnie talks about lust, um, we we had to clarify that gum in the context of Bonnie is not just about sexual lust or like indulgence in a sexual sense. It's also about indulgence in just the material world um, being governed by your sort of fleeting temporary emotions. Um, yeah, looking for indulgence in whatever way that exists. It doesn't only have to be in a sexual context. So that's another important thing, because a lot of times um, within like the translations of, of uh, that word within the context of Bonnie, we have phrases like love of fornication or in the case of the teens, a lot of them understood gum as sex before marriage specifically. So um, it's important to kind of contextualize that term uh, before before we can really understand what lust in the context of like a sexual uh like relationship or interaction means or looks like. So um, yeah, I mean, I think generally within Bonnie, like the, the classification of lust is that it's a thing that generates negativity or distraction. It's fleeting. It's um, centered in indulgence and attachment. And it might make you feel good for a second, but in the long run, it does frustrate you and it does, um, it causes pain. Um, you know, in within the report, we, we also like, talked about what it takes to to get that kind of under control <laughs> because you can't get rid of it because you're a human. Um, but what does it take to to recenter yourself in Nam? Because that's really what lust distracts you from. Um, so if you can't identify with Ekonkar in your day-to-day -day life because you're so busy kind of chasing these fleeting temporary pleasures, um, you're going to end up feeling a lot of pain. And then removing yourself from that in a way, kind of getting it under control is also a painful process. Um, so I would say that that's like the general understanding of lust. Um, and then in the context of like sexual relationships, I think it's, it's, you know, it's pretty much, it's similar. It's about things being rooted in passion and indulgence and, and kind of going with your sort of baseline, I guess, instincts to, to feel pleasure. Um, and then when it comes to uh, to love, uh, love, I think that's they're contrasted. So love is not temporary. Love is this um, deeply sort of committed thing that doesn't involve transaction or scorekeeping or any of those kinds of things that we do actually fall into within our relationships where we might think like, this is a love relationship. I'm in love with my spouse. Right. Like I'm in this context, I can't there's no way that I can possibly be lustful or or rooted in the temporary. And that's just not true, <laughs> because within our relationships, um, 
with our spouses or in our committed relationships, we can fall into that way of thinking quite easily. Um, so I think that was an important thing to think about too, because if we are just thinking about lust as being something that happens outside of the context of marriage and love as just being something that happens within the context of marriage, then we're not really understanding the full picture. Um, and one thing that I, I know, I know that I'm, I'm gone, I've gone on and on, but one thing that I did want to point out is like that metaphor that I talked about, about like, like union with Ikonkar, uh, like being used within the context of that metaphor of, you know, a, a sexual moment of union or a sexual union, um, which I know is controversial and makes people uncomfortable, but there's, um, you know, there's an example within the context of Bonnie that says, you know, uh, in, in Kuchaji, right? Grunatic Saib says, you know, I'm I'm the Kuchaji. And at the very end, he's like, okay, all you Sahagans, all you like fortunate brides, all you all you people who are connected with Ikonkar, how do I get there? Um, and then he, and then in that voice, the Kuchaji says to Ikonkar, just give me one night. Give me one night a union. That's like pretty explicitly you like that metaphor is very clear. It's not one night, you know. Of hanging out you know like that's it's a very clear metaphor and i think um maybe that makes us uncomfortable because we like to have those clear moral pronouncements there's definitely a history of that in the kind of in religiosity in general um it's either like abstinence or you know more tantric kind of <laughs> like overindulgence um but yeah i think that it's really important to look at how that metaphor is used again and again in gurbani um, and, and we also had an example that we included where it says, you know, I have had one night without my spouse and I'm, my body is like breaking down because I've had one night where I haven't ha felt that union. So again, these, these metaphors are there. And I think it's important to, to understand those in the context of these terms. Thank you. And you're, yeah, you're not going on and on. I think everyone appreciates the elaboration. Um, Herndler saying, thank you to you as well for joining us today. I will uh, throw this next question at you. Um, so now that we've, yeah, kind of gotten a little bit of context into love, lust, um, and we did touch a little on marriage. Yeah, let's delve maybe right into um, what Bonnie says about marriage and same-sex marriage, because yeah, I know that'll, that will come up. Um, a previous, I know previous State of the Fund report was released specifically on marriage in Sikhi and Adgarage, um, which has been linked in the chat box as well. Um, and I know Jocelyn briefly touched upon it, um, that an argument can be made and has been made that Bonnie specifically invokes a husband and wife. Um, so her they're saying, uh, what can be said about both um, marriage and same-sex marriage in Bani and what this metaphor, uh, yeah, under literal and metaphorical understandings of this of this metaphor. Yeah, uh, good for the everyone. Uh, so Manvinder, uh, I'm gonna start with where Jasleen started to carry this forward to this level because anything, anytime when we want to discuss something which has much more discontent within the community, we got to keep our principles in mind. And uh, and we know this, we must acknowledge that there are serious disagreements on this issue, just like globally there are, within the Sikh community there are as well. So first thing I want to mention is that the report is, as Jasleen mentioned, is looking at what the 
teenagers or people below the age of 25 were discussing and wanted to know more about. At the same time, it's looking at what as a community have we learned about this in our collective literatures, barneys, histories, as well as taking opinions of people today. So the reason I'm mentioning that is when you look up in English an article on related to sexuality and Sikhi, you just find Sardar Kapoor Singh's. I, in fact, even remember when I introduced that to teach at Siddhak, there was a lot of discomfort in the facilitators because we are just not used to as a culture to talk about something which is reduced to an act of sex, but in Gurbani is also something personal and something very intimate. So there is a larger discomfort with this issue, but gurus have figured out and had figured out a vocabulary and a way to talk about things which are very real emotions and how to talk about them in a way which are not divisive, which are not unhealthy, which are not explicit or vulgar, but something which builds us, builds our relationships. So the report is also getting into those elements as well. How does the Panth think about this? How do the communities who are all over the diaspora are gonna think about it? So with that, we walk into the marriage aspect. So marriage, you know, the oft quoted line, which every, all of you know, is that, you know, Ek doi murti, which essentially is about uh, that there is one light and uh, two bodies. Now, interestingly, uh, what I would like to share here is that almost all of the Sikh world, if not the whole Sikh world, which does interpretations of Gurbani, actually believes that this is metaphoric, including the Lama, including everything we are invoking. So when we interpret this and the rest of the Bani, we say this really is about the larger union with the divine, with the Kuankar what uh, Jocelyn was referring to. But when we interpret this for actual, what we now call marriages in a social sense, in a public sense, obviously it's a personal act. But when we interpret it for the marriage in this life on this earth, we end up reducing that this is actually only about a man and a woman. But in every other situation, when the terms tan or per or sohagan or dohagan come, there is no disagreement that they are referring to the beings, the human beings. So I think this is something we all need to reconsider a little bit. That let's not be so hush-hush that this is about, this is not gendered in Gurbani. It is definitely metaphorical. So why do we make this exception when we interpret it? And we need to reconsider that. Second thing we need to also understand is that we largely, we meaning most world societies started and also the Punjabi Sikhs, which are the 80% of the population even now in Punjab, we come from agrarian societies where they're conservative cultures. And when we come from those cultures, if we don't keep our principles in mind, we will end up making pronouncements which are more in line with the law of the land or the cultural practice of the land rather than what Gurmani is saying or what your value system is saying. So when we look at uh, from Abani's angle, the marriage is very clear. It is really about we are recreating the union in our lives on this earth between beings, between two individuals, classically and traditionally man and a woman, but Gurbani doesn't say that, it uses those words. And we understand this is how it was in the Guru period. And we understand this is how it is even in the current Rahat and we can get into it. But what we do also need to understand is that marriages, traditionally what they were accepted from day one and how that evolution has been taking place as well. So for example, at the Guru period, there is acknowledgement that there are people who are not cisgender. You know, we talk about 
Shah Hussain's example is available. In fact, he submitted his Shabbas, and we discussed this on the report a bit. And Mahakavi Santok Singh invokes said that Guru Arjan Sahib basically called him a great guy. And he wanted him to continue with what he was doing, whereas he actually critiqued the works of others. So this was not a pronouncement on his writings or on his individualism. It was really actually saying that this guy makes a lot of sense, how we will say it today. So the marriage as it was being uh, evolving, you know, the caste issues, we have we are still not evolved fully 550 years later, but it is something which we have been dealing with. Race issues have entered in last 20, 30 years, you know, as we have become more global community. But actually, I would say us marrying uh, in the inter interfaith marriages or interracial marriages or in American realities, uh, Punjabi Sikhs marrying Mexican farm workers before uh, the 1950s and 60s when you were allowed to bring your spouses, you know. So we have gone through those evolutions and now the world is talking about it, uh, about uh, uh, homosexual marriages or uh, relationships based on LGBTQIA plus communities, we need to understand that everything takes time. And this is a conversation we must be having because there are uh, six who are going through this pains. We also need to understand it takes time and patience and diligence to figure out how to navigate through, through these things. But one thing is very clear, it is all about human beings developing a very intimate and personal relationship as a purpose to connect with the divine, even in the unions on this earth. And traditionally, yes, those unions were, and they continue to be in the codifications between a man and a woman in a classical sense, but we must be open to and understand and empathize and figure out how to deal with this when people don't want to follow those traditional relationships. Yeah, kind of building off of that, I think, so yeah, so this conversation we've had about love and lust and then marriage, talking about, same-sex marriage, I think something, um, or marriage that veers away from heterosexual norms. Um, I think this obviously comes with a lot of judgment um, from the community if you don't adhere to traditional, uh, whatever that might mean, norms. Uh, so there is a theme in the report uh, around writings on grace. So particularly, I, there's a section um, discussing mentions in Bani of the courtesan Ganaka, um, who got freedom through connecting to Nam. Um, it's in the report, it says, no matter society's judgments of one's action, one can always be freed through connecting with Nam or identifying with Ekongar. Bani tells us that those who live in Nam culture are uplifted, regardless of what society might say. And later, um, even if an action is deemed unacceptable by society, grace pervades if one enters Nam's culture. Um, so Jasleen, I'll direct this question to you. Um, yeah, maybe you could elaborate on this question of grace and this connection that's being made to external judgments that is the lived reality um, of members of our communities. Um, yeah, that, yeah, external judgments that are made um, of people's sexualities. Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. So uh, the line says, Ajamal gaj ganaka patat karam kine tyo utar par pare ram nam line. So a rough translation of that, I think a pretty good translation of that is Ajamal, elephant, and ganaka committed degrading acts. They landed on the shore by crossing dreadful world ocean, by remembering one charmer identification. So I'll explain that. Um, Something that we explain in the in the report in the context of like the couple of of excerpts um, where Gunnika is referred to uh, 
it has to do with this idea of grace because when we talk about um, like external judgments that are put on people, a sex worker is like a prime example of that, right? Like what? how do we as society think of that work? How do we as society think of people who engage in that work? Um, and it's worth noting that even now in many contexts, that's a lot of times some of the only work people who are queer or on the periphery can can engage in. So um, even in Bikerdas's Var, like there's no, uh, there's no, he, he references prostitution or sex work as we would say now. Um, and there's no like question about whether or not those who engage in sex work are like guilty of something or whether there's a moral judgment that needs to be put on them. There's actually a question of like, who are, who deserves blame? Who's taking advantage of people? Um, in this transactional way, who's using courtesans for their entertainment. And it's a lot of times it's powerful men, right? So um, we felt like those, those verses and like that context was very important because we can take that further out and look at the question of grace and look at the question of moral judgment. Um, something that I found interesting, because I want to take it to like what we started to see with when the survey first went out is a lot of people were upset that the survey even existed. There was a lot of like feedback um, that said, you know, this is a private matter. Why are we discussing this in public? Um, you should leave this up to people to, to deal with on their own. And it's interesting to me <laughs> that when it comes to certain people, um, we feel very comfortable taking our moral judgments and our discussions on sexuality and the morals of certain people's lives. Um, very much into the public sphere. So when we talk about queerness, when we talk about um, like people who are not cisgender, like the way that we talk about them and their sexuality and all the things that it encompasses, we feel very comfortable making those judgments. So um, I think it's important to remember that we're not like, we're not centered in this idea of like, karma where like you do something and we're going to judge you for it and we believe that because of what you've done um, or because of the life you live and the moral judgments that we have decided to place on you you don't get you don't get union you don't get salvation in whatever way we you know we think that that is um, but I I think it's really important to remember that grace is always there grace can always be accessed through Nam, and the reason I mean, I'm, I can't speak for the gurus, but I think the reason that we included in the report is because we want to emphasize, just as they emphasized, that revolutionary idea that no matter what anybody judges you on, no matter what they say about you or how they classify your life, you can always access grace. You can always cross the world ocean with Nam. Um, and that relates to one of the takeaways that we had, which is that your Sikhi journey cannot come under external judgment. Your Sikhi journey is personal. This is about um, like cultivating a personal relationship with Ikonkar and a personal understanding of that relationship and, and watching that transform your understanding of your own sexuality and your own lived experience. So again, I think that idea of grace and, and the, the, Understanding that moral judgment, external moral judgment from like human to human has no place in this is one that I, it's a point I really want to bring home and like hammer in. <laughs> I think it's important for us to remember in, in a lot of contexts, not just in the context of, of sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it's, 
it's a powerful and, an, and a, a helpful inclusion. Um, and it's, yeah, not something that I would have expected to see when I when I think about what will I read when I read a report on Sikhi and sexuality. Um, so I think that was that and other inclusions was, was something um, that I appreciated about this report that it didn't, that it touched on, yeah, this idea or sorry, this of prostitution. And then there was also a section on um, polygamy. So things that I wouldn't, that wouldn't be at the forefront of my brain when I'm thinking about what goes into a, a report on Sikhi and sexuality. Um, but in regards to the polygamy section, um, there is a, yeah, a quote um, by, by Gerdas, and it says, in the report, it says it is clear, um, one is to have only one partner, as this is a wise choice and responsible social behavior. Um, and then this quote is followed, um, rightly so, by discussion of the lives of the gurus, um, some of whom it was believed uh, or claimed to have had multiple wives. So Harinder Singh, I'll direct this question to you. Um, what is, yeah, maybe elaborate a little more on the uh, discussion around polygamy that happens in the report and what is the Sikh understanding of polygamy? What, and how does it relate to the gurus lives? Sure. Uh, I want to also mention that when Jasleen was talking about Ganika's example as somebody who was a prostitute or a sex worker, at the same time, you know, there's also a mentioning of Ajamal in there, which is that there are people who have done things which, you know, legally or ethically or morally will be considered wrong, and then how they can also overcome their own um, violations in order to access grace as well. So we are not people of condemnation at any level. We are people of personal relationship and accountability so we can uh, access grace for anyone. Similarly, when I earlier was talking, you know, it was about same sex. I want to mention the same thing here. We don't have any condemnation. So we really need to watch out six, those who are practicing those things. You can have disagreements. But one thing is very important on the, on the same sex marriages when you ask me, I, I want to just reiterate here is that it is not a deviant behavior according to Gurbani. And you can read up on sciences which are even more clear on it. So making it that somehow they are being more lustful when they are not practicing a traditional marriage, those arguments don't hold any water because many uh, traditional marriages are uh, lustful as well, and there are rapes in them as well. So those arguments have no basis. We need to be a little bit more careful when we are making those uh, conclusions or pronouncements. So similarly, it applies to this idea of guru's lives. So what we know we have shared, and there are enough anic uh, historical examples or citations available, and we chose to go with Paikan Singh Nabas. It is uncomfortable area. It is an area where we don't know enough. So we shared what we know, because this is one of the sources cited who has studied these things, and there are, various exam uh, answers given on this matter. I've given those and many other people have. But the point is, what does it actually tell us? It's firstly, about the lives of the gurus. Look, I think we can share a few things. One is that when we are saying polygamy here, in traditional uh, uh, sort of a culture, when the gurus were also operating, uh, men can have multiple wife was, uh, although it was not a norm, but it wasn't an anomaly. Even 100 years ago, this was not an anomaly. So we have to understand the context of that. 
Second is, and this is already assuming that we don't know enough historically. So we just listed what we do know and they're inconclusive. So we must understand it's inconclusive, but we must acknowledge what we know. The other things are we talked about their customs around these things, which had consequences. And we gave examples of Guru Hargobind Sahib when he had rejected and what happened with the Chandu. And there are other explanations given that in some cases, marriage is not in a conjugal sense. But what we do know is at the end of the day, which is what you invoked, Manvinder, that what Pai Gurdas Ji is writing becomes the basis of what a norm is. What becomes essentially at some point becomes a code among the six. Because as the community is developing, as cultural norms are playing a role in defining who we are, we have principles which are also defining these things. So not acknowledging the Guru's wives is problematic and it is not historically possibly accurate and it actually diminishes from the status of the uh, uh, Mataji's, you know, the wives of the Gurus. Um, at the same time, we need to also understand that codifications get developed much later. Uh, and we also know there are problems of re historical revisions here. So I'm going to leave it at that. Now, let's apply what we do know about uh, marriage and about gurus and polygamy to what we are dealing with. So today, we do have a very clear uh, uh, codification of that in the Rahat. You know, there is one, uh, uh, it's a one spouse. And in a traditional sense, one wife, one husband. Um, but we also know at the same time that there is no such pronouncements uh, when it comes to what is a definite no-no. So yes, there are laws of the land we have to consider. There are cultural norms we have to consider. And there's a societal recommendation which is eventually becoming part of the codes. And we need to understand that the rahats and the codes and the rahatnames are reflections of the evolutions of the time into what the current societies are. So that's what we are seeing. So I want to just end this with this particular point that we don't have conclusive answers on this. What we do have is understandings developed to date on it, which start with this idea of becoming a coherent unit to experience the divine. And whatever you are practicing in, on this earth, it's a microcosm of becoming uh, having a union with uh, Ikhwankar or Wahiguru or Force, whatever you want to call it. So, uh, so we are not like RLDS or FLDS or certain Islamic laws or certain other cultural societies where they are endorsed by the religious practices. What Sikhs are dealing with in a very small percentage of this, in a in sometimes overly intellectual conversation on this, this is not really an issue for us. But even at the same time we do not get into moral judgments where people do do that because we don't fully understand where they're coming from. So that's an acknowledgement within the report that we have a recommendation is so, so clear. The current rehat is so, so clear. Everything else is not clear, but we are developing an understanding for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yes, this the context um, and is what I appreciate about this report. Um, I don't think the... Uh, goal of this report was to, um, yeah, make any moral pronouncements. So I think, yeah, that's, it's helpful in having or getting a conversation started uh, or, yeah, just a source to turn to when individuals in the community are engaging in this conversation. Um, yeah, and similarly, in this non-judgmental frame of conversation that we're having, um, one of my favorite parts of the report was the harmony within section. 
um, where it talks about the ultimate that the ultimate goal for each individual um, in regards to the sexuality is to find harmony within. Um, so yeah, coming kind of along the lines of the conversation that we've already been having, um, it says Guru Nanak Sahib says female is in the male and male in the female. Understand this, O divine realized being. Um, it is up to each individual to look into themselves and ask if the socially constructed and internalized binary of male and female harmonizes with the real purpose. So I know that that's like a quite a, a wordy, um, a wordy chunk. So the constructed and internalized binary uh, of male and female. Justine, I'm going to throw this question to you. If you could elaborate a little more on this and perhaps, yeah, maybe afterwards, Actually, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Maybe if you want to elaborate a little more on the on this on what social construction is and this internalized binary and how it's acknowledged uh, in the report. So the line is Purik Menar Nan Me Purka Pujo Pramgyani. So um yes, so that was the tr the translation you had read um is what we kept in the report. And we were thinking about this um this in terms of like a larger point that it's making about binaries, right? So a theme that we see throughout Gurbani is like we have to do that hard work of of addressing like sort of dualities and dichotomies and binaries and the ways that we other ourselves and um, and kind of categorize people like that's a thing that we constantly have to do the work to kind of unlearn. Um, and we know from like, you know, like current like academia that <laughs> like gender is a construct. Um, so I think but I don't think that this is just a point about gender. Um, so the way that we've explained it in the report is like, okay, the female is in the male because right. The male is necessary for producing like the female through sperm, right? Sperm's needed to fertilize an egg. The male is in the female because the female is the vessel that holds and nurtures and grows the human. Right. So these things are sort of, there's like a play happening there. I think if I can say that. Um, and, and that, that's not, in my opinion, not just a statement about um, like gender binaries. I think it's a larger statement that's being made about that unnarratable narrative, that thing that we have to understand that's really difficult to understand because of the way that we live as humans in the world, people of categories and people of these constructs. Um, so I think, yeah, I think like that larger statement about um trying to understand that unnarratable narrative, trying to understand and unlearn um, the binaries so that we can we can move towards an understanding of oneness, of ekongar, right? Like that's that's our work. Um, and I think the if I can take this into things that I've noticed in certain discussions amongst like people my age, um, and I know the whole report isn't about like same sex and uncarriage, but an argument that I saw a lot of times was about that metaphor that Harinder Singh spoke about. Um, and taking that metaphor as proof that that is the only acceptable version of a relationship between two people is between a husband and a wife, instead of taking it as, well, this is the most commonly understood context in which to make this point. Um, and when it comes to that and, and looking at Rehat, and understanding the spirit of Bani while you're trying to understand codes of conduct. I think if we're concerning ourselves with and focusing in on gender, which, which is a construct, which is something that is addressed in this excerpt, 
if we're focusing in on that, I think that we're losing sight of that oneness. And I think we're falling for that binary um, in a way that doesn't honor the spirit of Gurbani. So maybe that's a controversial thing to say, but that's that's how I would um, how I would understand this in the context of, of both the report and also the context of like discuss, larger discussions we're having currently, you know, on sick Twitter and all all that. Hi, I wanted to take a quick little break to let you know about a few things. You can look at upcoming webinars on our website at sickre.org. And while you're there, please consider becoming a donor. It's with the help from our audiences that the team at Sickre is able to continue exploring sick knowledge and illuminating the voices in the community. Or consider becoming a supporter of the SickCast by clicking on support on our anchor.fm page. However, this podcast is free to all. So if you do like the show, Tell some of your friends and family about us. With that out of the way, let's get back to the show. I am mindful that we are almost at the end of our conversation, and I would like to remind everyone to send their questions, which I see they are, um, Herndar Singh I'd, and Jasleen. I'd love to talk about um, our lived experiences with this conversation. Um, yeah, how have we in our personal lives engaged in conversations around sexuality? So I'll throw it to Harinder Singh first. Um, I know before this webinar, we had a conversation a couple of days ago around moments um, where you've been asked to advise or had to engage in this conversation um, around Sikhi and sexuality in your real life. Um, so in whatever form you're comfortable sharing, uh, how did those conversations go? Um, what did you maybe have to negotiate and confront uh, in general? Uh, when having these conversations? Yeah, I think this is very real question. Thank you for asking that here. Look, you know, um, firstly, I want to say that I've had these conversations in Punjab as well as in the West. So sometimes people like to think that these Western Sikhs are somehow getting influenced by certain Western ideals and they are bringing all these things in there. There's no such thing. You know, there is a in the in the, at the time of the gurus there was a east and west confrontation as well and we address things as we best understood and we learned those from the gurus and the way they talked about it so for example even with this discussion you know when 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 guru sahib is saying uh so uh, in gurbani when this is saying that this is really intimate stuff and we don't have katha on this but the gurus and the bani is written that contributors have mentioned these things and when ang and then so this level of if the inquiry is serious enough then we will be able to get into the shabads and that's what bani is bani is inviting uh, ideas into your consciousness so we can relate to the experiences of the contributors of guru granth sahib and if we are relating to them then we will be able to have not just a civic civil conversation on this, but a conversation which is about developing our relationships. So I remember, you know, I, I, I can think of other than being asked at forums about marriage and sexuality and homosexual marriages, and the people have been very uncomfortable. I remember sitting in a retreat in, uh, in Seattle and being asked this question probably 15 years ago, and most people just 
looked at me like, what is he talking about? I'm like, well, that's what I know based on my understanding of uh, Sikh ethos. And I remember having this conversation before I was married, sitting in a house in Chandigarh about, you know, and, and, and some of my associates telling me how to think about because I was, I had not experienced certain emotions or ideas of sexualities. So, you know, we go through our own phases of development uh, before marriage, you know, we all get kicked with hormones. And I remember when I got kicked with those, I had to think about some of these things. And when I read Gurbani, then I started making sense to me for the moment's pleasure, what am I really after? You know, I've had people coming from very traditional camps, including in Delhi and asking me, is it okay to have uh, uh, a pleasure with your hand? You know, a boy asking this. And I think those are real questions. We need to understand they happen. People are engaged in them and they want to learn about them. So as I am learning about these things, as I was learning about these things, as I go through those um, sort of uh, intricacies of, you know, and many a time you don't know what it is. These are, some of them are very raw things. Some of them require, as Gurbani said, you know, I think, so this is where Gurbani really comes into play when it says, you know, Ete rasa ke when I have so many pleasures, do I even have a room left to have a pleasure of the divine? So I think those are the real conflicts, real conversations. I like to believe uh, everyone has a need to understand this because gurus and the contributors and the pagats address these. I think we need to take a more delicate approach to these. And we need to ask people to pause much more and share their feelings and ideas rather than this is it. Because there is not much this is it. There is a transcendence of this is it, which is what a Kohankar itself is. This report also, yeah, does delve with this, the real conversations that are happening um, in this insect communities. Uh, and this report also has surveyed over 1,200 sex worldwide. And it was clear from these responses that lust and sex are not synonymous, sex and sexuality are not synonymous. Um, and there's also a clear consensus that sick institutions must play some role. And I see in providing uh, like non-judgmental support and resources to sex of all gender identities um, and sexual orientations. And I do see some conversation uh, and some questions regarding this. Um, and I think the purpose of the report is to provide context, like we've been saying on sexuality. Um, and from my understanding, I don't think this report is arguing what the sixth stance on sexuality is, but rather it's helping to, again, facilitate a conversation um, that people in the community may want to engage with. Um, but yeah, this role that the institutions play is very is very real. And I yeah, I do see already like two or three questions around this. Um, so just lead, I'm gonna throw this last question of mine. Um, to you, what are the steps that institutions can take, if any, um, in acknowledging the lived realities of our communities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, like first, first off, we need to we need to make sure that the institutions that are taking the lead on these things are kind. Of, they have a pulse on like what the conversations are, um, because if all we're doing is sticking to what we think is tradition or what we think is right, because that's the way it, it's always been, um, what we think needs to be relegated to the private sphere rather than the public sphere. Like if we're just sticking to doing it the way we've always done it 
while conversations are happening all around us where, you know, there are so many queer six who are doing such brilliant and difficult work of like bringing these conversations into the public sphere. And if we're ignoring it, if institutions are ignoring it and, um, and kind of staying stuck in a specific time where that wasn't a thing that we talked about publicly, like maybe even a decade ago, um, then we're not really, we're not really doing right by our, our smaller sungits and not, not doing right by the community at large, because part of what we, part of what we came to as like a recommendation at the end of the report was that like, they have to play, like institutions must like play some role um, in, in fostering environments that are non-judgmental, in fostering environments of support, in fostering environments where people can feel comfortable talking about these things without like fear of shame or judgment or like somebody calling their parents and telling them that they've, you know, <laughs> embarrassed the whole family. You know, like these are important things because it's not just about, um, like a moment where someone feels comfortable. It's about how we move forward through time as a community um, in addressing all of the ways that this manifests, um, all the ways this conversation manifests and the ways that when we don't provide support, it can, it can cause harm. So um, I think that's really important. I think like if conversations on like sexuality and queerness are happening, which they are, institutions need to figure out how to, um, sort of responsibly in, involve themselves in those things and and speak to the people who are having those conversations um, and see what you can do together because there are people doing that work. It's just not usually in sort of traditional institutional spaces. If I may jump on this, I think I want to bring the people's perspective into this and within the reports, the survey section, you know, just the two contrasting things, for example, people at large, 1200 plus of them globally, were very clearly able to distinguish between love and lust, as you heard earlier. At the same time, they were also telling us that they are not comfortable talking about sexuality in six settings. And mm -hmm. so that's the opportunity. The opportunity is uh, what uh, Jocelyn was referring to is, and as, as, a, as Sikri as institution, we also changed our mindset on this for this report. We are like, and we asked this in each report before, but in this specific one, we said, well, do we have reviewers who are from those communities? Because if we only ask the people to review these things and give us inputs who only follow a particular lifestyle or particular tradition or particular ideology, then how are, being, how are we learning and accommodating more to communities? We don't have to agree with each other necessarily on each of the personal choices of lifestyle or ideologies, but this inclusion of understanding that perspective at institutional level is essential. The, and I will give a personal anecdote here. Like I've been asked to intervene in where an individual uh, wanted to have a homosexual marriage. And for our traditional families, it is very, very hard to accept that, you know, and you can understand all the pains which everyone goes through, not just that individual. And the idea is then how do you have those conversations? Institutions need to learn to do that. Those who want to be uh, solving the pains of people Definitely, and I'm not a trained individual, but they, you know, people ask, and sometimes you have to say, okay, what you're able to do. So institutions need to develop those capacities, you know. And I know our institutions don't have many capacities, but those who are choosing to, you know, uh, uh, just like there are marriages of one kind, there are marriages of other kind. Just like there are lifestyles of one kind, there are lifestyles of other kind. 
And I'll just double down on what, what Jocelyn said. And they all play a role in their own capacities to empower the punt. And this is very important to understand. You know, there are many uh, who otherwise follow the letter of the law, you know, what we call rahat and sikrahat maryadas of their own persuasions, but uh, they are involved in all sorts of things, or even if not, and negative things, but even if they're not, they're not even contributing positively for whatever reasons. But then there are others who might not adhere to the letter of the law yet or otherwise, but they are incredible contributors to the developments of Sikh community globally, as well as what's happening in Punjab even today. So we must become a little bit more accepting of that, realizing there is all of us are hypocrite, only Guru is perfect. And in our hypocrisies, we can tone down, in our imperfections, we can tone down certain rhetoric to allow for this coexistence and co-development. Moving into questions um, that are coming in from our attendees, um, and building off of this comment that you've made on Rahat, um, of course, this is, yeah, a common question that's coming up. Uh, and Amrit Gaur has wonderfully laid out her question, uh, where she asks, there are many Sikhs who feel they have a right to make judgments using the discerning intellect to decide what is moral and what is immoral. Um, it is often these individuals who feel qualified to comment on Rahat. So, yes. Um, how can our collective Rahat Mariada be created or changed? And can it be um, to be more inclusive if we don't feel qualified to make these moral judgments ourselves? Sure. I mean, and, and you know, the Firstly, this is this is a question which comes up on anything when anything is rahat related. Let me say it. It is not just about sexuality or marriages. So we must understand what code is. Rahat actually is a lifestyle. We have Sikh Rahat Maryada, and before that we had Rahat Names. And specific to sexuality, what we really need to understand is, and I alluded to this earlier, that the codes are always based on principles. So whatever we are adhering to right now in Sikhrat Maryada is an articulation which was best available 100 years ago in that cultural reality where they were interpreting Gurbani and history and the Rahat Namik. So we must understand that's how code works. So when they did that, they left a room towards the end and how this needs to continue. Our problem is we don't continue with anything. We, in fact, halt things very quickly and move on to other things. So people are like, even in this report, we pointed this out just to make it very real that the word gaman, guard, you know, codified into not actually referring to explicit sexuality or conjugation. It just is, you know, they made it something else. So Sikhrat Maryada, the first elementary step is, I think we need, and somebody wrote to me, and I remember 10 years ago, we had this discussion, even 20 years ago, I even started a draft on it. We actually need a non-individualistic translation because we are missing out many things, even technically. Second thing we need is, in the absence of any accountability and how to make this system of codifications change, we need to have institutions who rise up to this. We need to have individuals who are putting out proposals. So I would be interested in creating a 2020 version of the Sikharat Maryada, and the elementary step will be, so first let's actually do the translations and then create highlights on you know what are the amendments necessary what are the and before those amendments what are the um conversations which are not as 
akin to the times we are living in, the realities we are living in. You know, it's very clear to anyone who studies Sikhi that there are only two or three foundational things we cannot change in Rahat. Everything else we must understand is a code and code has to be relevant. So we must have those conversations. I think if we have enough papers coming out on it, if we have uh, conversations in a, in a academic sense, as well as in a community sense on it, and then we will be able to, I actually think it is not just the thinkers because the question was from a thinker's angle. I think it's thinkers and practitioners have to come together to understand and feel Sikhi. And then they need to understand how to adhere to the Sikh principles and the ethos. And at the same time, they have to exhibit patience, empathy, and dialogue so they can delve deeper into interpreting Sikhi for the current codes now. Just like it has taken us, you know, the codes have five centuries of journey, 552 now. And those have navigated through, as I alluded to earlier, through caste, through remarriage. Look, even remarriage, how much socially, although it's so clear, in the code, even socially, it's not a practice. It takes a long time to change a practice, and it takes it's even very hard to change a practice if people don't remember the principles, which is what we are dealing with on the caste and the remarriage and those issues. Now we're dealing with something where we haven't even discussed. So just like a caste and the remarriage and polygamy and the race issues haven't been fully dealt with, although they have been covered by the Rahat, our work is really cut out. So our work really is to at least have conversations. It will take time. Our institutions are morally bankrupt. Our institutions don't have accountabilities all the way to the ones who were in charge of taking care of these things. They, I mean, in the context of Punjab and India, it's, it is no secret. Everyone knows we are not able to create those changes. So in the absence of that, let's have conversations. Let's write papers. Let's come up with what it needs to be. And if we are prepared when the Panth is ready to come together to deal with larger issues, this will be one of the issues we deal with. We do have a question specifically for Jasleen um, coming from Gundeep S uh, from New York. They ask, since you work at the intersections of academia and Sikh organization, and you can clarify if that's true or not, um, how, do, how can we bridge the knowledge we gain from those two institutions without being harassed by the Sangat for bringing Western knowledge into the fund. Okay, thank you. I, you know, I don't know if I have a concrete answer on that. Um, I think that I'll take it to to what I think is a a thing that I've noticed, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that this is the only problem, but I think uh, something I've thought a lot about is is our discomfort with, um, and we, we've said this when in the context of the State of the Funds report, right? We have this discomfort with, um, with, with uh, lack of concrete pronouncements. We have such a discomfort with it. Um, and I don't think that's a uniquely um, sort of sick problem within our community. I think that's a human thing. Um, we, are, we, are, we tend to be afraid of having to sort of take the things in front of us and think through things and maybe not always end up with something that is clear, which is not to say that there aren't clear moral pronouncements um, about certain things, right? Like within this report, we talk about um, if you, you know, if you uh, engage in incest or if you engage in sex with a minor, you will face consequences. Those are old retname, right? So um, it's not that there's that we're just floating with no sense of like a moral compass, 
But um, if we're going to say like Bonnie is timeless through context, through time, then we have to understand that interpretations will change over time, applications will change over time. And we have to get comfortable with that if we really wanna have these discussions. Um, and I think when it comes to like the academic and the, the like community, um, I think I think we need more work that focuses on like religious ethnography, which is why I have been thinking a lot about it. Um, I think I am I am increasingly uh, again personal, uh, but I'm increasingly like uh, uninterested in only looking at uh, sort of stagnant texts and stagnant. Um, ideas. I'm very interested in how we personally connect. I'm very interested in how we live Sikhi. I'm very interested in what questions we're grappling with as a community. Um, because if we're only focusing on like academic interpretations, which like ethnography can is is a thing that happens in the academic world as well, but you're bringing a community into it, which again can be a scary thing <laughs> when we feel threatened by certain um, certain questions even, right? Uh, I think when it comes to academia in general, your job is to like be curious and your job is to have a question and run with that question. And it's not always to have a concrete answer at the end of it. And if we're still at a stage where we are absolutely uncomfortable with even a question, then that tells me that we have a lot of work to do in, in bridging that gap. I don't have an answer, but I think like those are things that I've noticed as I as I kind of sit sit in the in-between of those two worlds sometimes. Um, and part of what we try to do with the state of the bunt, like I know it's long and I know it's detailed, um, but that's part of what we're trying to do, right? Is like bridge that gap. We're not trying to use like certain academic buzzwords. We're not trying to speak a certain way where things are inaccessible. Um, we're taking questions that we know the community is asking. We're surveying the community and we're trying to intertwine those things so that we can think through these things together. Um, not just, you know, think through them by ourselves or struggle with them by ourselves and then feel like the, the writings on them that academics have done are, are too inaccessible. Even when we quoted Kapoor Singh's article, I said, we were talking about it, I remember, and I was like, this is so dense. <laughs> it's so difficult to understand. You know, he wrote a very long time ago and he he was an intellectual. Um, and so we had to figure out a way to weave that into the language of the report so that other, like most people could understand it. So that it wasn't this like dense thing that, you know, you read and then you're like, I have no idea what that says. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but again, I don't know if I'm equipped to fully answer the question. Um, because it is called a state of the month report, we do have a question um, that asks it, that it, so it, you do have survey results from over 1200 self-identified sick respondents, but how far is it correct to present it as a state of the month? So if you want to comment on that, just say, or her say. Yeah. Um, I can, I can start and then you can add if, if you'd like, I think, this is a thing that we talked about with the last report as well, which was on abortion. And it's a valid concern, right? And we, we're pretty, um, I think we're pretty open about like methodology and the understanding that like, we can't access, let's say like six who don't have access to internet. We can't get the survey to them or older six, right? Like our demographic, the demographic that is filling out the survey is very specific because of various factors. Um, 
And I think that that's a thing that needs to be acknowledged. Um, and for that reason, I don't think, I don't think we've ever made the claim that like, this is what the bunt is saying be that's the be all end all but based on our survey this is what we've got this is what we're seeing as like the concerns that people have um or the thoughts people are having and it could very well be that like a lot of people who don't have access to the survey maybe have different opinions and i think what we try to do within the report is address those nuances before we even present the survey the survey comes at the end and the survey does not actually dictate um what we are going to be talking about in the report, like what subsections we have, what questions we're addressing. If we have the survey results in and we say we see a theme and we're like, oh, well, this is a big, this is a big theme that we weren't expecting, or this is something surprising, we weave that in. But it's not that the survey comes and then we're like, well, we have to write about this because these 1206 said that this is what they're concerned about. But no, that's, a, I mean, that's a valid question and, um, and something we think about a lot with every report. Mm -hmm. Prince Singh, would you like to add anything to that? Sure, I'll build on that. So I think from, uh, you know, this is where we uh, at SICRI, what we're trying to do, including through this report, is building a bridge between community and academia. So how do you take what academia has gotten very good at in terms of methodologies and systems and do work which is accessible and meaningful for the community so it does not remain in ivory towers? So survey is one such thing. Uh, survey, we, we are being comprehensive in the ways we can be, you know? Like most of the surveys, I mean, we don't do Twitter survey. It's a thought out. We have a data analyst who looks at all these things and that's what she did her master's in, you know? So this is not um, what Harinder feels like or Jasmine feels like is what I'm trying to say. This really is, let's try to think out from an angle of what really needs to be asked and covered. And then let's reach the populations where the larger sick populations are. Uh, and there are norms of how do you present data? So we are completely open about it, not just demographics, but their geographies as well. And we are making the raw data available. And hopefully this will allow people to go to large, I mean, 1200 sur person survey is a big survey. Most of the polls you look at in election years and you know all of those, they don't even have thousand people surveys, just so you know. So the point is, it is not that we are saying this is incredible survey. What we are saying is, this is the minimum we need to be doing. These are the minimum standards we need to have, which suggest to us, which show to us what uh, a segment of the sick population is thinking and what they are grappling with. So we are able to address it to some level. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's nice to even know that of the conversations that are happening internally that you are trying to make it more accessible because academia, yeah, as you mentioned, the every tower, it can be very difficult to read some of those dense texts, um, but it does feel very, you know, good to be able to understand a dense academic work. Um, yeah, shifting the conversation, there are a couple of questions around um, Akaltakt. Um, so they're, yeah, from various locations in the diaspora. So this is clearly a conversation or a question that many are interested uh, in tackling. And I know it is briefly mentioned in the report. Um, yes, so there's a question around the edict uh, banning same-sex marriage. Um, and then, yeah, just to have more of a concrete question, um, Harpreet from the Bay Area in California asks, um, there was a conversation about bringing the topic of gay marriage to a Galtakt. 
um, to have a final judgment. This seems dangerous, but my question is, is this something that could realistically happen? Um, yes, surrender signal, uh, throw this one to you. So, um, I mean, thanks for asking this question. I think we already know the answer. You know, when the system is broken, when SGPC and this Jathedar are either elected or appointed by one political party who has little or less to no credibility, when we know Jathedars are um, appointed and removed at will of even one individual many a time, when we know the realities they are operating in are the Indian laws and the larger Indian understandings of these things, and I'm saying Indian purposefully because that's where the statutory bodies exist, we know that cannot be the only way to get there until our systems are independent. And in the case specifically of um, marriage and homosexuality and who can do lava or not, if the guidance is not coming from Barney and historical precedents, whether it involves sexuality, lust or love or marriages, and it also is not involving, uh, you know, we like to say critical thinking, but there is a Gurbani word, you know. What is a Gurbani word? It says, you know, so there is a deciphering which has to happen. Vivek Dan, we ask for in Ardas. So if the pronouncements are being done with zero consultancies, if the pronouncements or judgments and directives are being issued which do not exhibit uh, what the Bani and the history says, uh, in the absence of all that, I think each individual has to ask, you know, because we are told that by governments too. So I'm not going to tell you what to do. Our, the cities we live in, the countries we live in, there are so many laws getting passed and we have issues with them. So every citizen has to decide what to do. You know, there are ones, there are some who choose to actively fight it. There are some who create just a Twitter war on it. There are some who work with people who are in the positions to change those things. Each individual needs to answer it to themselves. All we are saying is recognize even the context of what Jathedars are saying and recognize their uh, the lack of sort of processes available to them. And it's not about the Jathedar himself right now, but it is about the office of Jathedar and the Kautak Sahib and the SGPCs. And same thing applies to the local Gurdwaras. That's why they don't know how to deal with it. So individual Gurdwaras and institutions have to develop the system. And then enough, even if five to 10 institutions did this, now you have preparedness to deal with it in a larger community and something that can be offered. We are facing these issues with the Sarbat Khalsas and representation. So this is a subset of that. We are facing the same issues and the conflicts within the case of uh, marriages as well. Sylvia from Italy asks, you discussed polygamy among gurus. How about polyandry, um, which I know is discussed in the um, report. As for example, it was widely practiced among Jats uh, as Garewa. Uh, is there any sanction slash justification for it uh, in the scriptures? And Sylvia, sorry, also asked um, about the location of certain verses that we mentioned. Um, and I would just point her to the State of the Panth report, which has been linked in the chat. Um, but yes, Rindler Singh, um, on the on the question around polyandry um, uh, and sure. jets. So we touched upon that in the report. So, you know, like I was saying, there are issues of polygamy. And I was trying to provide a context for it that the percentage population which might be dealing with it, which we know is not very large. Similarly, when polyandry and other associated sexualities, there is no way we can cover 
exhaustive list, but we try to cover that in the survey questions. So like anything else, I think this needs to be located in the context of uh, what are the principles, like Barney's ideas. Even today's hokum from Darbar Sahib, and let me actually make it very calm. It says, eventually, if you are looking for eternal happiness, sadasuk, like something which you want to have forever, that only comes from sache sabad vichari. It will only come from uh, once we contemplate on the wisdom within the words. And this is what we are going after, whether it is same-sex, polygamy, polyandry, or other things. You know what the culture says. You know what the law says. We know what is not available in the code. We know what is available in the code. Consider all this, and you have a compass to work with. And that's what we are after. We cannot cover every single kind of um, sexual practice which is out there. But the purposes of these reports and creating these recommendations is to at least cover uh, where the larger population what's dealing with, the larger conflicts which exist, and others need to be dealt with in a more microscopic way with more studies. Um, there is also uh, some questions around Anandgarh um, and uh, interracial relationships. So I will, yeah, we will take one of them. Um, Shelly from Chicago asks, and I know the two of you are both based in the United States, so, um, not that this is just a conversation that's starting now, but I think in the current context, um, Shelley asks, how are you having conversations in your community about interracial relationships and marriages, specifically with Black partners? Um, yeah, I'd also love to love some insight into that conversation. Um, just Lena Hrender, whoever wants to pick that up. Well, I guess I can start because I think my, my contribution will be quite short. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know of any conversations happening around me about that. Um, I know that, I mean, I can, I can share like personally within my family that all, all of my Mossy's marriages are interracial marriages. And um, that's, you know, something that we uh, as a family have always been quite comfortable with. Um, and I, I kind of credit that sort of diverse family <laughs> family background for a lot of uh, my sort of trajectory on my own Sikhi journey. So um, I think I would say that like, if we're going to talk about like specifically like interracial relationships or marriages with specifically black partners, I think we also have to address like anti-blackness in the community, which is, you know, something that's come up recently. Um, and, and I think it's good that that's now something that we're talking about more openly. Um, because, you know, there's all, and I think we actually even maybe touched on this in the Anandgarh report of like, what certain things people are okay with when it comes to like interfaith or interracial. And it's like, oh, well, we're okay with this, but we're not okay with this. And, um, we pick and choose based on our own like biases and things. So, um, do I know of anything or am I taking part of any discussions like that right now? No, especially not in the comfort of my home <laughs> during this pandemic, but I am <coughs> those conversations happen uh, like online especially in the wake of like the revolution <laughs> like the, the black lives matter protests and and the murders of, of so many black americans that we've we've watched in horror um uh throughout this year so i do think it's important to have those conversations um and i think they are happening in the ways that they can um i would encourage more of it for sure 
So in the context of what we are discussing, uh, I think let's do a couple of reminders on principles, and those are very important. So as we have covered this in sexuality report a bit, and we covered this in the Anandaparaj report, intercaste and interracial marriages are a non-issue when it comes to Sikhi, which means it does not matter, you know, what their background is from those perspectives. Interfaith marriages are an issue and they need to be understood. And this is where I think we sometimes intermix the two things. What my friend, I have participated in marriages uh, where they are interfaith marriages, uh, but that doesn't mean there's a different thresholds. And this is where the sick world is grappling with the ones who are officiating what's their thing and ones who are going through this, do they understand what this is? So if somebody is to whatever level of practice it is, if they are coming together for civil or other purposes or even social purposes in a marriage, it is their prerogative. But do realize that principally there are issues when they're interfaith marriages. That said, what I also acknowledge is most of the Sikh world has primarily grappled with this when Sikhs married Hindus traditionally. And in some cases, where the interfaith marriage gave rise, traditionally speaking, historically speaking, to interesting sort of developments where who became sick and who didn't become a sick. In most cases in a you know, male-centric society, they joined, but some will fill. Like I know in my current family uh, where this had happened, where individual chose to become a sick, which means it is not an interfaith marriage then. So I want to say traditionally that's where it was. I know there was a there is a big distance content, and I'm aware of at least two cases where there were um, divorcees who could not get married. They wanted to get married to a Sikh, and they were both non-Sikhs who embraced Sikhi in their life, and then they went back. So there is this dilemma, you know, which is a serious one. Which our community, when something is a non-issue, this is what I'm getting at. When things are a non-issue, even then the practice is not visible. So which means our principles are not understood at a level of behavior transformations. Now we do know there are, I personally am not aware of individual where uh, the, one of the spouses is African-American or black Americans, if I don't want to, if, if one prefers not to use US-based vocabulary, but those realities are happening. Uh, those realities are being discussed now. And I know within my own families, and I have heard this in the conversation and the workshop I ran in London as well. We have created our own criteria around this, which is what Jocelyn was referring to. You know, they are not really Sikhi based criteria because I've heard people say, well, this is okay, but not Muslim. Well, this is okay, but not a black. Well, this is okay, but not you fill in the blank, right? So all I'm saying is those conversations do need to happen from a principal angle. They are happening right now, but most of them are not coming together uh, from a perspective of behavioral change, they're still at a very, at best intellect. And mm -hmm. okay, we are okay with it. Well, if you're okay with it, then why is that not a visible reality? And that's where we are. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that's an important distinction to make. Um, we are, I'm, yeah, so I'm just going to acknowledge that we are, there's about five minutes left. So I will, um, yeah, we'll do maybe one or two more questions. And if there's any closing remarks that the panelists would like to make, um, I'm happy to hold space for that. Um, but there is a question around sex work, um, which just I know you briefly um, touched upon. Um, so Amarpreet asks, so it's a two-part question. Um, what would be Siki's thoughts 
um, on legalizing sex work. Western research advocates that it would create uh, more safety for the people who engage in this work. And then um, there's also uh, individuals who choose sex work as an occupation. Um, so any thoughts on how this choice would be framed in Sikhi? I guess my, so my gut is telling me um, that if, if we're going to take the example of Ganika and say this was her occupation, um, was there some level of choice in it? I don't know if we can even really uh, like say anything about that. I don't think we can say anything about that conclusively. I think even something I referenced when we were talking about that was, you know, even in, in certain contexts now, there's not always such clear lines of like choice or, or, you know, yeah, there's not such clear lines or ideas of choice because there's all these different things that, that factor into to people choosing that work. I know I use the word choosing, but, you know, bear with me. <laughs> so I think if I'm coming from that perspective, reflecting on the verses that we included about Gunnika, I would say that like, if and, and reflecting on the conversations we're having about like, what are the realities, right? What are the realities of the world we live in? Um, the realities of the world we live in are that people have, people are doing this work. There are sex workers. Um, and so I guess my understanding of, of like the Bonnie that we talked about and that perspective about sort of understanding the context of our lived realities and trying to address those in a way that doesn't fight the reality that exists. Um, my gut would say, why wouldn't you want to make that as safe as possible for people? Um, I know that that's not a thing that all of us are going to agree on, which is why I'm speaking so <laughs> speaking in such a halted way. Um, yeah, I think that's that's where I would leave it with that, is that in, rather than saying we're going to make it illegal because we're making a moral judgment or we're going to make it illegal because we think that that's safer, we, we know that studies have shown that it actually makes sex work much less safe. Um, and we also know that sex workers are often the target of, of violence. Um, so and then there's the like added added element of like, what about transgender sex workers um, who are already targets of violence, even if that's not what they do for a living. Um, so we have to take all those things into account and the lived reality and the statistics surrounding that work and the people who engage in that work. Um, and yeah, my gut from from those examples and the conversation today is is to say it's it would be, um, it would be kind of our responsibility as a society to make sure that if people are engaging that work, which they are, to keep them safe. Well, you know, I think there are at least two things we can say with somewhat of a confidence based on our discoveries in the report. And then third is what Justine was referring to, where we have to exercise um, compassion and look at the realities. So two things which are very clear from the report is there cannot be any moral judgments on people who are sex workers. They are, they are, they will be, and they were always available to experience the culture of Nam as well. So I think that should really be driving the conversation. Because that's the ultimate idea in Sikhi that Bani is for all times, for all peoples, for all eras. So if it is possible, and I will bring the earlier question into there, which we didn't touch earlier, but we also reference this idea of Panchali, who was Draupadi, who in Gurbani is recognized, which refers to the multiple partners as well, right? Uh, this idea of that they all have access to 
this culture of creating this union or wedding with the divine. So that's the number one thing to remember in the context of sexuality. Second thing which we have, we can deduce from the report is when it came to the practice of this among six, there were no denouncements done to prostitutions, but there was consequences mentioned to those who claim to be Khalsa, then why they must not engage in those activities. So going to a prostitute for a Khalsa, for one who is openly committed and initiated, who comes from the larger tent of Sikhi, they must, because this speaks to the personal sexuality then, you know, why are you doing that? Have you thought about your love, your calm, your sexuality? So that's the second deduction we can do, that individuals who claim to be or working towards this oneness must not go and be engaged in the, uh, with sex workers in the sense of for their sexual pleasures, uh, because they are temporary pleasures. I know there are exceptions, but that's how the practice of prostitution or courtesans, because that's another thing I wanna bring in, the word prostitute and sex worker are very fixed in the South Asian context, they were they were very fluid. There were people who just danced. There were people who just sang. There were people who did playfulness. There were people who did anything more than that as well. And there are different words for all these. I just want you to know the context of the codification when it's coming into the report as well. And knowing those two things, the third thing will be, uh, given that from a Sikh ethos and from a Sikh paradigm, you create the best conditions for people we know human trafficking is a problem too. We know sexual slavery is a problem. And we know from our mindsets and the laws how we need to deal with this. So similarly, when the community is telling you something, a sexual worker community is telling you something, when the laws are informing of something, we should be using the ideas of Gurbani to facilitate that as well in order to enhance those lives or create safety for those lives. Um, yeah, sorry, just to be mindful of time, I'm going, and there's a question that's kind of beautifully linked to our webinar next week um, on the Guru Granth Sai project. I will end with this question, uh, and then please, further Singh, Jasleen Kaur, um, any closing remarks you'd like to make, um, please do make them. Um, but this last question um, is about the recently launched Guru Granth Sai project. Are there specific efforts in the project to make gender egalitarian and gender inclusive translations? For example, breaking the masculine pronouns when referring to the transcendent. So I will throw this one to Jasleen. Um, but yes, feel free to throw it to her and they're instead. <laughs> I'll, I'll catch it and then throw it, if that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, I know, not I think. Yes, that's a conversation we have constantly. This is a global project, and so we have team members from all over, um, from varying contexts of varying, <laughs> of varying ages. Um, and so we've even even now after, you know, this project has launched now, but it's something we've been working on for a while. Um, a constant kind of thing that we come back to is like, what are the principles of our of our process? Um, and sometimes we slip up, like sometimes we have a he that sort of sneaks by us and we have to go back and, and fix it. And, um, and I think like that, that is an understanding we have all come to as a team, like from the beginning, which is that using words like he or Lord, um, where they're not explicitly there, like there, there's the husband divine metaphor, right? Um, but where those, that gendering is not there, 
there is no need to insert it. And in fact, it is an alienating move to insert those things into the text, into the translations. Um, and then when it comes to uh, the literal translations in situations where we have that dynamic between the human bride and the divine husband, right? Um, we keep it literal. We keep it gendered in the literal, of course, because we have to honor that metaphor. But when we go into the interpretive and into the commentaries, we are very clear that this is about a larger relationship between a seeker of any gender, of any gender identification, and the spouse, um, which is Ekonkar. So I think that is a, a thing that we we do consciously and consciously come back to in conversation a lot of the time. Um, yeah, are saying anything to add? <laughs> I, I, again, in this context, of course, the, what uh, Jasli just said, let me add a layer of that to it, including on the pronoun question and Guru Granth Sahib project mm -hmm. and sexuality we are discussing. Remember, every contributor of Guru Granth Sahib is a male. So, and those male contributors in many Shabads portray themselves as females. So when they're using those pronouns, including the sa and so, we just had a discussion in the Guru Granth project about this. Uh, there are many programs, by the way, there are like there are more than 50 pronouns we're having to deal with this. So we're having to understand literally what it is, then the positioning of that and the metaphor which we use. And on top of that, when the individual contributors, gurus or the pagas or the parts, when they are presenting themselves as a woman. So we are having to figure out what is that pronoun doing? What we can very clearly say from all these learnings is that the larger issue, which is what uh, we have tried to bring out for report and this conversation, hopefully to benefit individuals, that these constructs are primarily for conversations. When it comes to developing relationships, they are irrelevant. Uh, in relationships, it's the intimacy, in relationship, it's the personal development. It's the transcendence of the binaries and things of that nature, what we have been saying. And to put it in the words of Gurbani, Guru Teg Bahadur Pasha, we mentioned this in the report as well, where he says, he talks about himself. You see, when we have to talk about tough things, we have to personalize it as well, even if I have not done those things. And he says, he says, Papi So you know, this idea of sin and the idea of lust, he's like, Am I the sinner? I am the sinner because I am the one with calm. So let's figure out how to deal with the calm rather than saying that person is sinner. So we're not talking about the legal issues and sexual misconducts here. This is about development. Remember, when people do those things which are morally, ethically, and legally not right, there is a way to deal with all that. That's not a discussion today. Our discussion is how do I deal with my sexuality? How do I deal with, quote unquote, my idea of what a sin might be? not just a traditional idea of sin. This is about also not just a traditional idea of what a hell is, because Guru, Guru Sahib also says, hey, kamang nark bisrama, that it is because of you lust, I'm living a hellish life. So, you know, gurus have, contributors have completely disrupted these social constructs. And they have said, let's go inwards. Let's try to understand what it's doing within my mind, within my body, within my sexuality, and then make sense of it so it can have a healthier relationship with the divine as well as at a personal levels, at a human level. Um, I would yeah, like to yeah, I just thank the both of you first for uh, having this conversation with me. Um, I think 
I, yeah, I really appreciated the questions that have been coming in. They've been very thoughtful. Um, yeah, and I would like to yeah open up some space if you'd like to make some closing remarks. Um, just think or heard this thing. Anything you'd like to add that maybe we've missed? Um, I think I'll just take it into a more general, since this is the first state of the month webinar we've ever done. I think, you know, you. I'm not going to reiterate the recommendations. I think that, you know, if you want to see them, they're there. Feel free to read. <laughs> but I think the more general thing that I'd like us to think more about as a collective is is how to how to foster uncomfortable conversations, um, how to sit in the discomfort of those conversations and and how to really make sure that every every moment that we have the urge to kind of fall into othering or fall into moral pronouncements um, and fall into name calling, if we're going to look at sick Twitter sometimes, um, that we revisit this idea of if we're going to take it to the baseline, revisit it con car, try to cultivate that personal relationship. That's our work every day. Um, and when we do that, those conversations we have are better. Uh, what we learn from each other is, you know, hits home a little more and we can see things change. Individuals start to change. Institutions start to change. And I think that's something that we can all agree on is that we'd like to, you know, move forward for the betterment of, of the month, I think. If we can agree on that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's like a general point that I wanted to make. Well, and, and I'll, I'll just leave it with that, you know, that well, both of you, Manvinder and Jocelyn, you are adding to this conversation and through the report, we have tried to add more to the conversations. And in the case of sexuality, let's bring people who identified with other pronouns, just like the gurus and the contributors did to add to these conversations. This is just something in the absence of uh, a articulation. We just did a articulate an articulation, right? So just one offering. And we need to have more of these offerings where he, she, they, and other pronouns can come in, including from a figurative as well as literal, as well as lived experiences. So we can actually have a much more meaningful understanding. And then comes a meaningful codification. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, I would just like to end this conversation with more thanks. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate the, the sitting with discomfort. Um, and what maybe happens after you've sat in the discomfort. Thank you for joining in. Today's webinar will be ending now. You are listening to SickCast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.